Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype right to the heart of the big issues of the day. This week, we're training a lens on China and exploring its importance to investors and to the world through the prism of UBS Asset Management's Panorama publication. We're joined today by UBS Asset Management's Head of Investments, Barry Gill, and by its Head of Sustainable Investing, Lucy Thomas, to remind us why China is so important and to better understand and address some of the primary misconceptions about the country. Barry will reflect too on conversations with Dr. Kei Jin, leading economist and author of the book The New China Playbook, Beyond Socialism and Capitalism. As well as all that, we'll dig deeper into the China investment case and hear about some of the compelling opportunities that remain even as the country's multi-decade period of high growth has come to an end. Let's meet those panellists, Barry Gill and Lucy Thomas. Barry, Lucy, a warm welcome to you both. And Barry, just to kick things off with you, tell us a little bit about the focus on China. Yeah, Tom, so I think I've spent about two and a half months on the road this year, primarily seeing clients. And it is rare for me to find as consensus a positioning in the investor base, be it institutional or private client on a specific theme. And there is a very consensus view on China out there. It is driven by lots of different things. The unpredictability of policy setting from Xi Jinping, the fear of return of capital in the context of what's happened in Russia, the property debt bust that's taking place, concerns around ESG, lack of correlation of equity returns to GDP growth. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And when you get to this point where everybody is one way, you have to start to look to try to build a counter case. And we in the investing world, we have to think about forecasting, but we're primarily focused on discounting. And a lot of bad news and a lot of negativity is discounted in the uh, asset prices in China. And so we wanted to take a fresh look and figure out whether that was appropriate. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I I suppose the point of that is, I guess people have, as you said, lots of maybe preconceived notions. Once you started to then dig deeper, were there surprises? Or actually, did did you often find that things did conform with your expectations? Look, as an investor, you go in with your own bias, right? And my bias has been that this is a deeply misunderstood situation. I take a very long-term view on the capability of China. I think I understand some of the biases that people have. It's a very poorly understood society by the sort of Western public. But I have to check myself as well on that, right? Because I don't want to go in with a narrative and build a theme effectively to support that narrative. We have to be open-minded. We're in the fact discovery business. So I think the things that were on the positive side that sort of supported the the case were all the evidence that we were able to find on on what an incredible innovation-oriented economy this is. And I just think that's going to grow and grow going forward. I think the thing that I really didn't understand properly, and Dr. Jin really illustrated this well in the New China Playbook, the book that she wrote, was this concept of you know, centralized politics, but basically decentralized economy and and how so many decisions are devolved out to the local hierarchy and how dynamic 
and competitive that is and how each of those little locations tends to learn from one another. I didn't have an appreciation of that. It actually, it, it buttressed my confidence, but it, I was blind to it going in. So probably they're the, the major takeaways for me. Yeah, well, we'll do, dig down in a lot, in lot more detail. Lucy Thomas, let me bring you in here. We, we'll talk a little bit later about the essential role that China will need to play in terms of looking at climate change and, and net zero. But just on that point, I guess, that Barry was making about preconceptions and the, the necessity of doing these deeper dives. Tell me a little bit about, about that, China and net zero, because I guess, again, there's probably a lot of preconceived ideas. There's probably quite a lot of misperceptions, aren't there, about, about China's role in in the road to, to, to net zero. How important is it, again, to, to take a step back, to do the research and, and challenge those preconceptions if they're there? That's what we've tried to do in our in our recent research was actually take that step back that you describe and, and remove ourselves from some of the, maybe some of the preconceptions that are out there. So one of the things we did was thought about how do we allocate in portfolios when we're thinking about climate? And typically, there's one of two strategies. You you invest in solution providers, so the new technologies, the things that are addressing climate, or and or you invest in those existing high emitting companies that are improving. And you need both actually to get to net zero portfolio. And you can decarbonize your portfolios, but if the economy doesn't decarbonize, you won't get there. So that step back and thinking about portfolios when we overlaid that through a China lens was very interesting because when we think about China, the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases, 30% of the world's emissions. And the US is number two at around 11%. This is 2019 data. But as you know, there's many ways to slice emissions. And if you look on a per capita basis, the US emits around almost 18 tonnes of emissions per person, while China is only just over 10 tonnes per person. And when we think then about allocating to strategies, we can also think about allocating through countries. And I think that's where it became clear that an overall investor's portfolio can't reach net zero unless the real real world economy is reaching net zero. And that includes China. And so it becomes really important as we think about how we allocate globally as well. Yeah, well, we'll come back to some of those mechanics in a minute. But if I can just bounce back to you again, Barry, and you mentioned Dr. Jin's book. It's interesting because I guess part of that is looking at challenging misconceptions again. And it's very important to do that. I just wonder if there are any reflections from the book or from conversations that you had with Dr. Jin about the ways that we must do that. Not not specifically in the ways that we must do that, but she really just did a deep dive on a lot of the different aspects of the economy that are relevant and that need to be understood at a more granular level. You know, for example, she talks a lot about the one-child policy that China has pursued for a very long period of time. We all understand that, but we don't actually understand that. We don't think about what the demographic significance of that means. We don't understand how older Chinese people, parents, have invested so much of their effort into rearing these individuals, and that's why the savings rate is as high as it is with the older demographic, but how the younger demographic has a much more typical view of an appetite for the things that their Western siblings may have or Western counterparts may have in terms of appetite for consumer debt and the finer things in life. And that presents this sort of dichotomy and this transition that China is going through at the moment 
And we tend to have a very monolithic view of the economy. And I think that she does a very good job of challenging that and really presenting this China as is and China that will be in the future. I think the other thing that she does a good job of exploring is on the topic of innovation. And we have, I think, a somewhat disparaging view of copycat innovation. It's not directed specifically at China, but we think that uh, copycat innovation or iterations on existing innovations are not, not really great innovations. But we have a lot to thank China for, if it wasn't for the fact that China had engaged with the intellectual property that countries like Germany, etc., had produced around photovoltaics, solar, you know, 15 odd years ago, we would not have gotten solar to the point whereby it is effectively competitive with hydrocarbon power. I mean, that's, that is incredible that that has happened. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of criticisms of the subsidization that takes place in that, but it depends on what your overall economic goals are. Sometimes the economic goals lead to long periods of low profit, but at the same time, extraordinary outcomes, which I think is what we've seen here. So uh, I think we have to step back. And then, and then on the innovation front, again, there's this view that China won't be able to make the leap to sort of really, really disruptive new innovation. And I think that that's probably a flawed concept. That's probably going to prove flawed over the medium term. So she really tackles a lot of these different aspects in depth. And I think that that is the goal of the book, actually, is to provoke fresh thinking, hence the name of it. But I think that's also the goal of what we're trying to do. We're not trying to present an unbridled bull case on China. We're trying to challenge the status quo and get people to stop and take a second look. Yeah, I mean, that's super interesting. And I, and I guess this feeds into this idea, again, if we look at a slowing economy, again, it's acknowledged this, this multi-decade picture, consistent high growth maybe coming to an end. And it's very important, though, I guess, and I can ask you both about this, to underscore this point that the opportunities don't end with that period of, of, of high growth. And interestingly, Lucy, I guess if we pick up on this idea that Barry was reflecting on there about certain specific uh, areas, things that are driving innovation in technology, th- there's a nice overlay, actually, with with uh, joined-up sustainable investing, presumably. And it's very important to highlight the opportunities and not just the challenges posed um, by the end of that, that, uh, that, that period of, of economic boom. Absolutely. And the opportunities aren't always the obvious ones either. And sometimes they're the... the the second derivatives almost, if you like. So we've seen this explosion in low energy expansion in China recently. And that really positions China very well over time, potentially, to be competitive in many industries with a with a low cost energy base to go forward in the future from. Interestingly, there's been the drivers behind that appears to have been a confluence of events in some ways. So we've had the obvious policy direction and commitment, and that's been clear. So in 2020, President Xi Jinping said he pledged to reach net zero by 2060 and peak emissions by 2030. And that has spurred a lot of activity across a number of sectors in response to that. But at the same time, we also saw the downturn in the real estate market which really pushed and provided an opportunity for a redirection of capital and linking back to what Barry 
talked about early on about this decentralized economy is effectively what you had was local governments needing to find a way to replace some of the income from the real estate growth that they had relied on. And so there was an increased access to capital for typically private companies in the low carbon space to grow. And at the same time, you also had technology improvements, which meant falling costs. So all of these things coming together has mean we've seen huge growth. So for example, China's output of solar cells is likely to exceed 600 gigawatts this year. That's up from 375 last year, and it's enough to produce 500 gigawatts of solar panels. But to put that in relative terms, there was only 240 gigawatts of panels installed globally last year. So the capacity that's been brought on by China will play out and have an impact globally on the rest of the world, but obviously also for China and how it's positioned in terms of its energy costs. One of the things that investors are going to have to reconcile with is that the the model, the framework that they have used to think about investing in China, it's broken, right? I'll call this a quantity of GDP model, right? Where there was massive infrastructure build, et cetera, et cetera. Now, quantity of GDP models are effectively low multiple economic models. Now that's been thrown, you know, the, the, all the disruption that's taken place with the policy changes, et cetera, et cetera, that sort of scattered the cat amongst the pigeons for a period. But we're going to need to reset. And if people expect us to go back to the old model, I think they're going to be disappointed. But the new model, or the go forward model, is what I would call a quality of GDP story. And this is consistent with what's going on with the demographic. As people get wealthier, they want different things. Now, I think if we go back to 2008, we'll all recall the smog-ridden skies of Beijing ahead of the Olympics. I was just there in March, clean air. So a lot of things have changed. A lot of things will continue to change. And as people focus on quality of GDP, which is going to be around services, the consumer economy, technological innovation, the social safety net of healthcare and financial services, et cetera. These are all high multiple activities. And so there's some digestion with the property bus that's taking place. I think the government is going to do a good job of supporting an orderly deflation of that overall bubble. But the go forward economy is a much higher multiple quality of GDP economy. And I think that's a much more exciting place for investors to be. Well, yeah, undoubtedly. And actually, Lucy, I was going to ask you about this because another one of these narratives, which I think, and again, the media sometimes reframes this, is this idea, look, if we want to address the challenges presented by climate change, for example, we can't do this without China. Is there almost a, a, an extra step needed, which is to say we need to recalibrate China? Look at the change, you know, the change that Barry's just described. We need to recalibrate and have China as a leader in this space. And there's, there's different priorities, even domestically, about the environment or healthcare or social services and health and well-being. China's it's going to be in the vanguard and it's not a question of keeping it on board. It's a question of getting it in the driving seat, perhaps. And I think I think that's very true. And, and the, the idea of the, the strength that that policy commitment um, can bring and the change that can happen so quickly with that commitment in a country like China really allows China to lead in many areas of climate. And we're all benefiting from the, in, the reduced costs of solar around the world. Um, and there, I think we, over time, we will see multiple other areas as well. The debate really does often center on China's increasing coal capacity. 
But I would look at that in a short term context relative to the investment that's going on in some of the longer term carbon capture and other areas. So there is this delicate balance, I think, that China is playing between what it needs to do in the shorter term to keep the lights on, but in the longer term to be um, very competitively positioned for multiple, multiple industries. Of course, the tensions with ES, within ESG are nothing new, and you, you, you reference those, Tom, and we have those all around the world. And I think they're going to come up and there's something for us to, to reconcile as investors and understand what that means for future returns and for sustainability outcomes. But very, very key is China to the long-term growth of our overall economy and of investor portfolios when it comes to climate uh, well, just on this topic, this idea of balancing or rebalancing present power dynamics, I did want to change tack slightly and, Barry, ask you a little bit about the dollar and dollar diffusion, because I th- just think this is really interesting. There's an opportunity clearly here as well, isn't there, for China to reposition, and, and there's an opportunity in terms of a broader rebalancing of power dynamics in global finance when it comes to the dollar, without getting you to sort of unpack in, in, in microscopic detail. Just, just give me a, a flavour of why this is such an interesting narrative as you see it. If you take a very long-term view on currencies, whoever the power hegemon is or whoever the trade hegemon is tends to dominate or tends to have the currency that is most widely used. It started with the guilder. I mean, you can go back time immemorial, but in modern times, it started with the guilder. That ceded to sterling. That then ceded to the dollar. And really, the dollar in the U.S. has now sort of been the big man on campus, I guess, for nearly 125, 130 years. But that transition takes place very, very slowly. Clearly, we don't know what the future looks like. But the Chinese economy is now becoming so large, and there are so many countries effectively in its orbit that it has the potential to shift the default currency of trade at the margin away from the dollar. Now, these things take decades to take place, but it is in China's interest ultimately to probably open up the capital. They've been very reluctant to do this, but to fully open up the capital account. If they do that, they have a shot at achieving what they call the exorbitant privilege that the U.S. currently holds with respect to just persistently issuing debt in its own currency and where trade ends up being in its own currency. So you end up with a strong dollar, you could end up with a strong yuan dynamic. We're a long way away from that. But there are a lot of things that are going on around the edges, and they are not specific to China. Yes, the rise of China creates a contention. But the other dynamic that is going on is, and I don't like the term, this term of global south, but there is lots of growth taking place in lots of countries that are very different countries to the ones that effectively set the world order post-1945. And they want a voice and they have a different view in how things should be. And they are probably a lot more open to trading and accepting the renminbi or the yuan. And they're more open to thinking about a world that is away from the pure dollarization that we have at the moment. Again, it'll take probably crises to to catalyze that. It'll take ongoing growth and strength in China, and it will take this opening up of the capital account. But you've seen very significant moves by a lot of central banks who historically would have had their default holdings in U.S. treasuries, gilts, funds, things like that, away from that. 
a lot of central banks have been building up gold positions, for example. And so these changes are subtle. At the margin, they are in the direction of China. At the margin, they're away from the US dollar. It's way beyond probably the investment time horizon that the vast majority of our readers and clients think about. But at the same time, that transition is likely inevitable. And it's probably accentuated by the fact that we are moving into a more and more digital economy. And I'm not going to say whether crypto plays a role in this or not, but a digital economy, a digital currencies, the way the Chinese economy is set up today, the fact that it has had to skip a lot of the legacy infrastructure on which Western economies have been built, the financial infrastructure on which Western economies have been built, gives it an edge if it wants to be innovative on this front. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a very dynamic, very fluid situation. I think the direction of travel is inevitable, but it will take a very long time and it will take some structural changes in China's confidence around its capital account. That's Barry Gill bringing us to the end of the show here on Monocle Radio. You can listen again at monocle.com. That's where you can join the club by subscribing to Monocle magazine. You can also follow this programme wherever you get your podcasts. As ever, you can find out how UBS can help you at ubs.com and you can explore more in-depth research and reporting from UBS Asset Management on the theme and more like it. Just head over to ubs.com forward slash panorama. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.